The Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome all to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here as usual with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He is going to introduce to us the subject and guest of today's show. Andrew, how are you today? I'm very well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today, Nate, is uh, Mark Lindeke. He is the head of cyber defense at the Munich airport. He's also the head of the Munich ISH, the Information Security Hub. I spoke to him at an event at the Information Security Hub. Um, Let's cut over and, and see what he has to say. We're here at the at the Munich airport. Uh, at the end of uh, uh, an event that the the ISH put on, um, can you talk to me a bit about the airport? Uh, you know, what are the physical facilities here? What are the uh, how are they controlled uh, with computers? How does this how does the airport work? The airport works as a big city, as opposed to many people's view. The airport has not a lot to do with airplanes. Of course, it's spectacular. They are landing here. But our main focus is um, to keep the infrastructure up and running. The passenger flows, the heating, plumbing, parking, shops. So we are more like the owner of a city with attached runways than something which is deep in aviation. Yes, we do have radar systems and other very nice systems. But um, an airport has more to do with a city or a train station than many people think. So can you give me some examples? Um, You know, you've given some examples of sort of the the mundane and the infrastructure. I'm keenly interested in the airport part of the airport, too. Um, You know, what other kinds of systems do you have, like baggage handling? What... What else, what else do you have sort of on the, on the technical end, on the aviation end of the airport? Um, aviation end starts at radar systems. There's um, surface movement radar systems, which are part of the airport infrastructure. The radar systems tracking the planes when they're coming in are air traffic control. That's not ours. But as soon as the airport, uh, the airplane is on the ground, we are starting to be responsible for what's happening afterwards. And very interesting, spectacular systems. So let's say the most expensive system at the airport is a baggage handling system. And if you had a construction toolkit as a boy, you could dream of such a thing. It's about 50 kilometers of transportation length. And we are sorting, I think, in total with all systems, about 20,000 pieces of baggage per hour. And that's a lot of industrial control systems, more than many manufacturers would have. And that's the main system which has a sheer size and is the heart of a hub airport like Munich Airport. You don't want to travel without your luggage. So everything which, with, which has to do with transporting and sorting the luggage precisely and in time is the golden discipline of a major hub airport. And in Munich, we are rather good at that, I think. Uh, I'm delighted to hear it as a passenger who will be passing through Munich Airport in just uh, uh, less than 24 hours. Yes. The good news is from us as a IT perspective, you are moving alone. We will give you guidance. 
We have the info gates, for example, the route management systems where you can find your way through the airport, which might be helpful. The interesting part with them is they might know better than you what's the optimum way because they are connected to queue length and elevator disturbance and other things. So if you want to know your way from A to B, even if you know the airport, play with the info gates, try to find out what they are recommending, and they might be right. So, Nate, Mark is talking about the airport being like a city. And, uh, you know, we, he, he talked a little bit about, about surface radar, which is the, the radar that keeps track of where the a- aircraft are on the ground so they don't run into each other while taxiing and presumably don't run into, you know, other smaller vehicles that are, are taxiing around, that are driving around. You know, what What struck me about um, a lot of the systems he talked about, even the... Uh, you know the uh, the air traffic controllers radars all of these radars there's manual backups uh you know if a hacker gets in and drops i don't know ransomware on the surface radar system and just erases it so that there is no surface radar anymore um you know these people can just turn that off this is why the tower is raised this is why the tower can see everything on the ground they get on the analog radios and they start talking to the to the pilots and you know telling them what to do talking to the people driving the fuel trucks and telling them what to do um you know even if the the air traffic control radar goes out there's these things that you know i dimly understand that are manual flight rules uh visual flight rules i think they're called and you know the the whole the whole system uh can fall back on on manual backups Right, but I'm even feeling anxious just thinking about taking down a whole baggage system and having to sort tens of thousands of bags per hour by hand. I mean, you and I, Andrew, could do it, but I don't know if if other people could. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, no that that's uh, that's a different kettle of fish. So you know that that leads into my my next question, asking about you know um, what happens when when things go wrong and and how they're connected. The info gates, are they, you know, just an example, are they wired to the control system or are these things out on the internet and my cell phone can give me the advice and now we're talking about information from, you know, deep in in the airport reaching out to the internet. Is this an example of, you know, drifting towards internet of things? Yes. There's a database behind the info gates which is not only used by the info gates. There's also an app called Passenger which is used by many airports, so you don't have to download one app per airport. And the, info, the passenger app is connected to the same backend, so they, na- they know all the shops, the opening times, the directions, and what's the best way through the airport. It's one backend and, and some front ends and even connected to some industrial control systems and their status, not to misguide you. So, Andrew, you brought up uh, connectivity with Mark, and I think that's a discussion that's come up a few times on this podcast, how, you know, as much as it enables you to do certain things, enables services and savings, at the same time, it comes with all of the associated risks with opening up uh, new vectors for attacks. That's right. Connectivity uh, always introduces security risks. All cyber attacks or information, every piece of information can be an attack. Wherever information flows, uh, it's possible for attacks to flow. So this is sort of the usual, the usual way to think about this problem. You look at a, a big complicated system and you say, where does the information go? That's, you know, that's the, uh, that's the communications channels uh, that, that we have to start looking at security-wise. 
Right. And for all the, the, the great things that can come from opening up new ports of communication between systems and across distances are the same things that open you up to, uh, to those same vulnerabilities. That's right. So, you know, that leads into my next question I was going to ask, you know, basically, what are we worried about? This is the Industrial Security Podcast. And so, you know, I'm going to ask you about security in a moment. Um, security, in my mind, starts with consequences, the consequences we are trying to avoid. So if someone, you know, is, is in the airport tampering with industrial control systems, um, what are the consequences we're, we're, we're trying to prevent? What, 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 what do you worry about? What I'm worrying about, I'm an IT guy. So my history is IT, and I'm interested in OT, operational technology, and I'm trying to bridge the gaps. Whenever somebody says safety in industrial control systems, my alarm bells regarding security from a cyber perspective are ringing loud and clear. For example, we talked about elevators. You were thinking perhaps, why does he talk about that? The idea is an elevator is safety critical. That means it has a certification and cannot be patched. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with that. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a costly process getting these certifications, which, you know, begs the question, uh, compensating measures is, you know, can you, can you talk about what you do with equipment like that, that cannot be updated? We isolate them, which becomes a very interesting challenge. If you want to tell the passenger, don't go this way. So this information needs to come out somehow. So we have to connect them. Formerly unconnected systems start to be connected more and more. And there's a clash of cultures. The IT-rooted culture thinks a critical software update should be installed within 48 hours. The OT-related community is more, I'm overemphasizing, saying... A critical software update should be checked and tested for a year or two, then certified and then installed, which is fine as long as both systems are living in their own cosmos. But Industry 4.0 digitalization and all those nice things are connecting them. And that's an interesting challenge for me at present, how to bridge the gap between the IT and the OT culture, let's call it like that because the systems are converging, so the people need to start to converge too. And it's not only the people, it's also the legislation and all the rules. It's two different planets which try to find a common way now, which is very, very interesting. And I'm happy to be born in this area to see this historical change, I hope at least. But we have a lot of challenges, and I like challenges. So, Nate, this is classic. Um, you know, uh, Mark's discussion of, of the, the elevator safety systems. Uh, I don't have the numbers for elevators, but I, I do have the numbers for other kinds of, of uh, safety systems. Um, you know, I was talking to some folks uh, a year ago um, about uh, big manufacturing machines. You know, these are machines as big as a room that have, you know, thousands of things flying through them uh, in, in the course of manufacturing. They have lots of moving parts. They wear out. And so when they wear out, you've got to go in and replace the piece that's broken, 
you know, technicians are assigned to these machines. You've got to be sure that the machine is idle or turned off so that a, a, a technician can stick their arm into it and replace a piece or crawl half into it and replace a piece. Um, in some jurisdictions, these machines, you know, and in this case, the machines in the elevator, the machines, it's illegal to operate the machine unless the computer control system has been certified for safety. Every change, any change, however minor, to the source code, to the, the you know, the, the, the computer code in the control system um, demands recertification. It's illegal to operate the, uh, a safety-critical device in a lot of jurisdictions um, with changed code. You have to recertify the safety of that code. Recertification costs, in the example I had in the manufacturing, between a quarter million and a half million euros every time you recertify. While Microsoft puts out security updates, what, every month? There's multiple vendors involved in a lot of these control systems. You might get a security update every couple of weeks. Who's going to pay for recertifying the elevator uh, control system at a quarter million dollars a pop or, you know, 400,000 euros a pop um, every two weeks? Who's going to pay for that? Okay, I'm starting to understand all of the issues around frequent security updates of these kinds of systems. But, of course, we still have the problem that we can't ignore this even withstanding those costs and those problems with, with, you know, testing the source code. So what is the solution here? Well, this is what I asked about compensating measures. When we cannot solve a problem directly, we have a, a security vulnerability in a piece of software, the way to solve that problem directly is to change the software so it's no longer vulnerable. It no longer has that issue. Fix the software. Um, but when we cannot fix the software because of the cost of recertification, because of the danger of using uncertified software, we have to use what are called compensating measures. We have to do something else. And I asked, this, you know, that was the, the buzzword I used when I talked to Mike Mark. I said, what compensating measures are you using then? And he says, we use isolation. Because, of course, you know, all information flows are potential attack flows. If we isolate the control system from information flows, then we don't have a problem anymore. We can we buy ourselves time to, you know, update the software at our leisure. If it's every year or two, you know, we can do that. Uh, we can, uh, you know, someone can afford to pay to recertify the software at that frequency, even if every two weeks is just not going to happen. Right. The The concept of, of isolating the system makes a whole lot of sense to me. But, of course, Mark did just mention this app that, you know, it's supposed to tell you the fastest way through the airport. And, you know, to my mathematics, these elevators are part of that system. So presumably, you'd need a way for the elevator being down to be communicated to the smartphone app, in which case you have a path of information, in which case you have an attack vector. No? Yes, unfortunately, this is... This is classic. This is the uh, the heart of one of the, the points of friction between IT teams and OT teams, IT security teams and OT security teams. You know, the IT teams say we have to patch these vulnerabilities promptly because you've introduced all sorts of connectivity, haven't you? Each of those paths of connectivity is an attack path. And the OT teams say, no, you can't because we got to recertify for safety or, 
you know, it's not safe to operate this this uh, this question mark of of new software coming in. This is this is the classic uh, conundrum. And uh, if I remember correctly, I dug deeper into it with Mark in the next set of questions. You've talked about the challenge. Can you talk about progress? Um, what's the airport doing about this challenge? How's it going? What are you know what what, what have you accomplished? What are next steps? What we accomplished is. Um, typically IT and OT projects were run separate, separately. For a while now we are starting and it has great results to do projects in OT together because it's an IT perspective and an OT perspective and if both perspectives are in there we get secure safe and flexible systems that's a very interesting process that's the main meta thing we have to look at bring the people together. It's the same thing we have seen many years ago with voice over IP and telephony. The telecommunication department and the IT department needed to get together. And now we have to bring the IT people and culture and the OT people together. So it's not a technical problem so much. Ah, Andrew, my favorite topic yet again, uh, crossing the OT-IT barrier. Uh, yes, indeed. It's a it's a classic theme. I mean, the the cliche is that IT security teams need to learn that some OT systems, safety critical systems, certainly, but even other systems, reliability critical, some systems are special. They cannot be patched promptly. Um, on the other side of the coin, OT needs to learn that not all of their systems are special, and many of them should be patched promptly. Uh, in particular, any systems that are exposed to the cell phone apps on the internet, uh, you know, need proper uh, prompt patching, uh, because that communication path is not reliability critical. It's not safety critical. It's a. It's you know, if if it goes down, the app drops, but the elevators keep working. I think the IT and OT people need to form separate kickball teams, and whoever wins the game is automatically right about their way of thinking. <laughs> Something like that. They they do need to get together. They need to learn to talk to each other. They need to learn to to appreciate each other's perspectives. You know, this is Mark's challenge. He's he's living that uh, right now, as these teams come together at at the Munich airport. Right. And your next question for Mark changed gears a little bit. Let's cut back to that. This is the Munich ISH, the Information Security Hub. Um, can you talk about what is the ISH and does it play in this process of, of bringing IT and OT together? The Information Security Hub is a rather big lab. It's one and a half thousand square meters with space for 140 people to sit and to work and to listen to the same audience and to party afterwards if it's necessary. Um, because bringing people together and establishing trust from all the perspectives for us is a fundamental thing underneath if there's no trust, people don't know each other and understand each other. Everything else cannot be compensated with paperworks and emails. So we can see it as a big playground where people are coming together to solve common problems from all possible perspectives. Can be IT security, can be OT security, can be convergence, can be building prototypes. But the main underlying thing is unite people and perspectives to support cybersecurity, digitalization, industry 4.0 and bring Europe a little bit further, quicker 
because we have been a little bit slow in the past in this area. So, um, you know, you've you've talked about the facility here, um, but it's more than a facility. You've got you've got programs as well. Can you talk about the programs that use the facility here? Um, we are organizing ourselves as the owner of the ISH, I think, 50 different trainings for qualifying and maintaining people's skills with a, currently a focus on IT security, cybersecurity, virtualization and Industry 4.0. Our portfolio with industrial control systems is growing. We are starting and the first um, trainings are out. We have upcoming conferences like, for example, the Bugnet Plugfest with the main European industry players for industry uh, for building automation are coming together for compatibility checks and to bridge the gap a little bit between IT, IT security and OT. So we're using the opportunity to exchange perspectives and opinions and get to know each other and understand each other. So, you know, the, the, a BACnet plug fest, you mentioned sort of all of Europe as well as the airport here in Munich. Um, are people from outside the airport invited to the training, invited to the plug fest? How much of this is, is airport specific and how much is in the broader community? Um, we had made the mistake to take an airplane into the logo of the ISH. We wanted to say it's happening at an airport. It's not happening for airports. And the ISH is on one hand a club which organizes trainings and conferences. On the other hand, a physical location which can be rented and used um, wherever you need a conference center with a lot of technology in for technical people to touch, play, and not only look at PowerPoints, but also touch the systems. And the Bugnet Plugfest, for example, we are only the host and we are a guest. It's organized by the building management industry and we are renting out the location and offering our perspective. It has nothing to, more to do with airports than with train stations or manufacturing. They are using our location because it's a very convenient location made for this purpose. Andrew, you visited this facility. I did. Uh, it is a very nice facility. It's, it's brand new. Um, there are three labs, three different sizes. I think the biggest one will seat 40 or 50. Um, there's a lot of donated industrial control system and security equipment. I think, you know, he was talking about hundreds of pieces of equipment and more coming in so that if you want to put scenarios together, there's a lot of, of equipment and, and inspiration that, you know, that's there for, for industrial security training. Um, you know, there's there's a large boardroom that I think it seats like 30 or 40 people. There's an amphitheater that seats, I think he said, 140. He didn't mention there's a control room. The thing is a uh, a slice of a scale model of, uh, you know, the, the air traffic uh, control tower. And you're sitting up there, you can be, you know, you've, you've, you can have visibility into your defensive systems. If you're doing a red team, blue team training, you know, the, uh, the overseers of the exercise, the one, the referees are sitting in the, in the control tower. They can see everything. They can control everything. Um, it's really a, a very nice setup. I mean, uh, at Waterfall, we, 
we run, uh, you know, the occasional event, we, we bring customers in. Um, this is a nice facility. I'm looking seriously at uh, whether we're going to, you know, how we can use it uh, going forward. Have they got any podcast studios? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, but I'm thinking the control room is uh, is pretty much soundproof. So that's that's a little area to uh, to do some recording, yeah. We should have been in there. You heard some of the background noise on the recording there. We were actually sitting in the amphitheater, but uh, there was there was uh, you know people doing stuff a little distance away. And if I may, who comes to these courses? Why do people come to these courses? Um, if we hire a junior security analyst, he would call himself already a master of um, cybersecurity because he has made a master degree in cybersecurity. So he has learned a lot of what the universities can teach. And then he starts here as a beginner. He learns how to use um, the systems which are currently used in the industry, learns how operations is done, and how a system is working commercially, which is not so much taught at most of the universities we receive students of. And when you get a student like that from the university with a master's in cybersecurity, do they tend to have any industrial background? No. Most of them don't. Some of them don't even have a background in networking or other things. So we have a lot of basic courses to fill the body of knowledge which is necessary for them to do a comprehensive view on IT security or OT security because our opponents are able to do lateral movement and if you want to track somebody through the systems you have to know all the systems he's tapping on so a broad knowledge is necessary plus some expert knowledge to track them down if you have located them in a single segment so a lot of this you know the focus of the ISH sounds like, uh, not all of it, but, but uh, a lot of it is focused on workforce development. Um, can you talk about uh, who's hiring these people? Who are they looking for? Um, you know, what are the gaps? How are you filling them? The security market is rather empty. If you are looking for a ready-made cybersecurity expert with 10 years of experience, they are really difficult to find. So we have to build them ourselves. And we have two possible sources. One source is highly talented students, master's degrees, information security or computer science, and make them seasoned security experts and send them into industrial control systems, which they have perhaps never touched. But they bring in new perspectives and they are very, very welcome. And they bring a lot of knowledge the older guys don't have. On the other hand, um, I think we have underestimated the potential which is sitting in a seasoned engineer. So if somebody has 20 or 30 years of experience running, let's say, baggage handling systems or industrial control systems in building automation, I would be really, really happy if more of them would say, I'm not dead yet, I have to work 15 years more. Now I'm curious and want to explore the area of cybersecurity because everybody can learn it if he has a passion to do it. And if somebody has a background of 20 years of professional operation, adding cybersecurity is at least as fast 
And as good in the output, teaching a young man how to grow up, work seriously in a professional environment. You know, I have some empathy for these these kids coming out of school that in order to enter the, the ICS space, you need both the industrial and the security. That's right. Um, you know, it, industrial security is all about the, the, the two kinds of expertise coming together. Uh, this is why, as Mark pointed out, it's it can be difficult to find people because there's more stuff that they need to know. Um, and, you know, the the obvious way to get people with both sets of knowledge are to, is to take people with one set of knowledge and teach them the other. Teach the IT people or the young people coming out of school with an IT background, teach them industrial stuff, uh, you know, how the control systems work that, that keep the lights on, that keep the aircraft in the air. Or take the engineers who already understand the control systems and teach them the security stuff. Now, I didn't ask Mark, but, uh, you know, I have to wonder if it isn't easier to find people who want, you know, to find engineers who want to learn about security um, and become industrial security people than it is to find IT people who want to learn about industrial systems. There certainly are some of those, but I just have to wonder if, if uh, you know, given the the huge space that is IT, um, if it you know and, and you know trying to interest a tiny fraction of those people in this this uh, niche that is the the industrial world, it's a very important niche, but it's it's a smaller space than the IT space. Um, if it isn't easier to find engineers who are already familiar with the uh, the industrial space who want to learn about the big IT space and you know bridge the gap and become the industrial security experts i just have to wonder if it isn't easier to find engineers and and teach them security but you know the to mark's point his facility the ish uh, serves both needs if we have it people who need who want to learn about industrial um, he's got the equipment and the capabilities he's putting the uh, the programs together to do that if we have the other way around, engineers who want to learn about IT security in order to apply it to the industrial systems, he already has those programs up and running and, and they're executing. So, um, you know, wherever the people come from, it sounds like the, uh, the, the programs they have there are hitting the mark. So how's it going? Are people coming to the courses? Yes, people are coming to the courses, but we are young on the market. A structure like us, as per our opinion, doesn't exist yet so people are hesitant in the beginning and just putting a toe in which is normal but everybody who's who put a toe in continues to swim but we have to spread the news that we are existing and um, this is working very well growing faster would be nice but we cannot expect it but so we are on track and happy to have found um, a niche which seems to work, but we can welcome additional trainings, additional trainers, additional guests. We have space left. So let me ask just one more thing about the background. I kind of skipped over the background of the, uh, the, the Munich ISH here. If you're providing a service to the community as well as to the airport, um, who is behind this? Who's funding this? Is this something that, that the airport started all on its own or was there sort of a wider community involvement? Where, where did this come from? If we had um, chosen to build the ISH on the common opinion of a wider community, we would, I think, still be talking. 
Um, so we have built it ourselves as Munich Airport and are offering it to the community. The reason behind building the ISH was I was searching for people to work for our department and we were not on the radar of possible job applicants as an interesting employer. Nobody would have thought that cybersecurity has is such a big thing or industrial security is such a big thing in an airport. And I asked my colleagues, how are you getting your talents? How are you filling your open open positions? And they said, it's a nightmare. We don't find people. If we find them, they are difficult to keep because some of us cannot offer them the network and community which they want to develop themselves as deep experts. Looking at this need, we said, okay, we have the problem. A lot of other companies have the problem and have built the ISH to use it ourselves as a customer and invite other customers to use the ISH to attract, keep, maintain um, talents, network them with the community of the ISH and give a perspective a company couldn't give alone. Andrew, what did his uh what did Mark's comment mean? Wait for consensus and nothing happens. Um well, it's it's difficult, you know, it's difficult to generalize uh about the 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 European community. It's it's nearly a billion people. It's, you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of uh variety. Um but in my my limited exposure over there, um, I get the impression that industrial cybersecurity, industrial security generally is not, uh, on average, uh, is not as as advanced, is not high as high on the radar of enterprise decision makers as it is in other parts of the world, in North America or even on the uh, on the Pacific Rim. Um, and you know it, the the conversations I have with people at events. Uh, like the the one at the the Munich ISH suggests that it's difficult to spring budget free. It's it's difficult to uh, to justify investments in this space. You know, my I interpret his his comment as, you know, if uh, if we waited for a consensus to say, hey, we really need this, um, we'd never get anywhere because uh, part of the job here is raising awareness and and uh, you know driving that consensus. Uh, and in a sense, uh, if I'm right about sort of the average over in Europe, bringing that average up, bringing the floor up, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, working to to raise the profile of this issue as high in Europe as it is in in other parts of the world. So you know, uh, I interpret his his uh, comment as saying they need to you know the the European Union. Um, and I think they have some EU funding, uh, at least in part, behind this this center. Um, the European Union, or uh, it might have been the German BSI, um, said we need to take more of a leadership role, uh, get out there and drive uh, this awareness. And uh, this is what what I see uh, Mark and the the Munich ISH doing. You know, I must say I'm, I'm somewhat surprised that the EU is behind on this matter, even after what occurred in in Ukraine. Did that not prove a, a turning point in how people prioritized ICS security? Um, well, as I said, the EU is a is a, a big area, and the Ukraine is not actually part of the EU. 
but um, yeah, it it. Uh, I think if you talk to anybody in the Ukraine, you might find a, a different perception than there is in Europe generally. Again, uh, I don't have numbers to back this up. This is just you know feeling I get from talking to people at these kinds of events, the people that I run into, the people that I, I do talk to. Um, you know, they a perennial complaint is uh, persuading senior management to allocate budget to industrial security. So, uh, you know, that's that's why I make that observation. It's it's uh, anecdotal evidence. It's it's not statistical. I, I haven't seen a survey on this. You know, if somebody wanted to to bring one to our attention, we'd we'd love to talk to you as <laughs> as a guest on a future episode about a survey like that. That's fair enough. Now, your next question for Mark was your last. Let's jump over to that. Is there a, a thought, a message you'd like to leave with, uh, with our listeners? The ISH is a roundtable. Munich Airport is only one client of the ISH. There are free seats next to us. So if you want to form and run the ISH together with us, and be part of the movement, welcome, call us. All right, Andrew, your last thoughts on Munich ISH, or as I call it, Munich-ish. <laughs> uh, Munich ISH. Yeah, um, I just wanted to echo uh, Mark's point. Uh, the Munich ISH is uh, located at the Munich airport. It's convenient. You know, it's easy to get to by train. It's about a three-block walk from the uh, the train station. Um, and their focus is not, you know, training for the Munich airport or training for airports. The focus is information security, and you know, a uh, uh, a subfocus, a, a theme as well is is industrial security. So this is a a resource for you know everyone in the geography, everyone in the European Union, everyone in the in the neighborhood. Um, and uh, I think that was that was his main point: is you know, come and use this resource. Um, and I will, I'll echo that point, and I'll point out that it's it's a it's a lovely resource. Um, you know, the, the the facility for training is is world class. The uh, the training programs uh, continue to expand. They're very relevant. Um, they continue to be adding the uh, the industrial side of the equation. They've already got a large set of uh, industrial training programs there, and uh, you know anyone who who needs to come up to speed should be considering this resource, especially if you're if you're in the geography. Um, and, you know, the facility is available as well for related purposes. Anyone who's looking for a facility to uh, contribute to the uh, cybersecurity or industrial cybersecurity dialogue in Europe uh, should be considering this facility as uh, a possibility for hosting uh, those kinds of events and, and that kind of training. So, um, you know, I, uh, I look forward to great things for the, the Munich ISH, the Information Security Hub. Right. Well, with that, thank you to Mark Lindica for sitting down with you. Thank you, Andrew, for sitting down with me. Thanks, Nate. It's always a pleasure. We'll catch you next time. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>